Edie is delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's episode, which is all about reporting and communications, we speak to Alicia Chin, who is the Director of Sustainability and Social Impact at VF Corporation, to learn about supply chain engagement for better data collection. Being able to build those deep relationships across the supply chain not only lends itself to transparency and traceability, but really being able to create true impact across your entire supply chain. Dr. Victoria Hans, the Director of Sustainability at The Open University, tells us about how to effectively upskill and reskill workers through engaging programs. And then at at an executive level, obviously the day-to-day financial sustainability of the organisation rests at that executive level. So really making clear that engagement in ESG is not a nice to have, it's not a bolt on, but it is about having a viable business in the future. And Sarah Brown, the founder of Pi Skincare, gives us her top tips on sustainable beauty communications and how to cut through jargon when talking to consumers. That's the magic of brand for me, it's the goodness that you've built in. And it's how you, that communication of your environmental and ethical credentials, it can be subtle sometimes and it can just be layered. Yes, welcome along to this episode of Sustainability Uncovered from ED, hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It is the week ending January 26th, 2024, and you're listening to the voice of Sarah George, the deputy editor of ED. Um, and I'm alone in our podcast studio in West Sussex today, but joined virtually by our content editor, Matt Mace. Um, Hi, Matt. Why am I not important enough for you to make a trip to the office today? Hello, yeah. um, I'm on some pretty strong painkillers and meds as a reason, so I get a little bit drowsy to start with, and then I get a little bit, um, I suppose, active and need to walk around a lot. Not exactly ideal for, like, uh, off-desking around an office. (laughs) So I thought it's best if I... uh, work from home until the, the pain has subsided, which it really has started, which is good. Well, I mean, it could have been like a bit of interpretive movement about an actual hot desk that we're we're missing out on, Matt, so I do feel a bit hurt. Um, but I will bring us down to our actual topic for the day, which isn't Matt's health, although we usually do start the podcast with that. Um, it's the fact that it's our first full episode of 2024 and we are in the middle of Engage, our week-long annual editorial campaign dedicated to all things related to sustainable business engagement. Um, and I'm not talking about diamond rings, I'm talking about Uh, reporting requirements, effective communications campaigns, avoiding greenwashing and building relationships with key stakeholders and everything in between. Um, It really is a bit of a smorgasbord of information and inspiration on sustainability engagement. Um, So Matt, I was hoping you could give us a flavour of what's been going on in past engages, seeing as you've done more of them than myself. I understand that it's always one of our most popular sort of campaigns of the year yeah i mean pretty much i was going to outright refuse to explain it then that's like a point of how important it is to talk and explain and engage but that wouldn't really it would have just come across 
course is rude, so I've, I've abandoned that idea and instead will tell you, yeah. Um, engagement week's just incredibly important. A, because we started off with the year, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of that new year, new meet, meet kind of cliche, but I do think that applies to businesses somewhat. I know the financial year is different, but they're, they're kind of, um, in terms of communications, engagement, historically on the news desk, we see a bit of a ramp down around Christmas time, although obviously different last year because of a very late COP, but um, it gets a bit quiet. New Year comes around and we start to get more kind of news stories, announcements, pictures and that. So so how to talk about sustainability is definitely on people's agendas anyway. So engagement week strategically placed in end of January for us to really give our audience some expertise um, through multimedia um, formats about how to better disclose, report, communicate and be transparent and honest in a way that kind of negates greenwashing. I think we're seeing this... um, and have done with this this kind of net zero sustainability drumbeat since 2018 that even amidst a pandemic and a cost of living crisis hasn't really slowed it has it has slowed but not not never been derailed which i think is testament to the sustainability movement in itself um and there's lots of well-intentioned companies setting really ambitious targets making a lot of noise about sustainability trying to you know position themselves strategically in the market and there's just a lot of noise to cut through. Consumers, stakeholders, investors are probably scratching their heads trying to figure out what's legitimate, what's not, what's misleading, what's kind of taken in bad faith. Um, and Greenwash has kind of reared its ugly head in, in the last few years, um, much more so than, than perhaps previously. So engagement for us is all about tools, techniques uh, and tips for businesses to articulate their sustainability journey. And I think journey is the important word there, not, not the destination, but where they are right now where the improvements have been made, where the focus areas, where the challenges are, in a way that essentially attracts stakeholder uh, attention. Um, so that's the end of Engage, and yeah, it always has done well this time of year because I think people are, are kind of getting their feedback under the desk and they, they want something to listen to that's um, going to help them shape their, their kind of uh, focus for the year ahead. Yeah, which is exactly what today's episode is all about. Um, as Matt's mentioned, Engage is multimedia, so we've got loads of other stuff up on the site. We've got some guest blogs from Superdry and Interface. We've got a free-to-download reporting and communications handbook. Um, I've written a feature giving you a behind-the-scenes look at Make My Money Matters video of Olivia Coleman, um, who stars as a, frankly, very, very unsettling latex-clad oil and gas CEO and what that can teach us about comms. So there's all of that and lots more on our website, ed.net. Um, but do stick with us for now as we're rounding off this jam-packed week with today's podcast, including three short and sweet guest interviews to hopefully inspire your own sustainability engagement work. Um, each focuses on a different kind of audience to be engaged. So I'm going to start with suppliers and then move on to different teams of staff and finally customers. And as mentioned and by Matt, there is ample time to focus on greenwashing. So I'll be putting him through his paces in a mini greenwashing pop quiz. Um, but we've got lots to get through. So I am going to go straight into our interview on supplier engagement, which is with Alicia Chin, who is Director of Sustainability and Social Impact at VF Corporation, the owner of brands, including Icebreaker. Um, And she's been working with them for several years and has a wealth of information and knowledge and insight on how to work with suppliers as you implement, as Matt said, those big top level goals 
on climate and on regeneration as well. So without further ado, here is that interview with Alicia in full. Yes, so as we've mentioned, it's great to be speaking with Alicia at VF Corporation for this next part of the podcast to dive into the supply chain side of engagement and also touch a bit on reporting. So Alicia, thank you so much for your time. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sarah. No, thanks for dialing in. I understand we've got something like an eight hour time difference. So thank you very kindly for making that work. (laughs) Anytime. Yeah, and for me, I'm sitting here in the dark while Alicia is just about to get started with her day to paint the picture. Um, so it's great to be catching up. I'm aware that we haven't spoken yet. We've spoken to people at VF um, several times in the past. So it would be great to hear about your journey at the company so far and what you've been focusing on today. Yeah, great. Actually, I've been with VF now going on three and a half years. I joined um, with SmartWall uh, to lead their sustainability and social impact work, um, really coming in to define the overall sustainability strategy and work across our marketing, our supply chain, our product team to start implementing a lot of the, the great work uh, that that brand is doing. And then to, to your point, I, just within about six months ago, my role expanded to include some of the other emerging brands at VF, including Icebreaker and Ultra. And so for me, it's really been super exciting to take a lot of the experience that I have at SmartWool and bring it to these great brands, particularly Icebreaker, which you know has such a storied history around sustainability. It's such a key part of their purpose. Uh, and to think through that next stage of what that sustainability strategy can be. And then on the flip side, Ultra is a, is a brand that really hasn't, you know, honestly focused on sustainability. So to now dig into what their point of view is around this work, how they can start to focus in on in terms of their products being more sustainable, but then also really engaging with their consumers and, and, and making the case for why this is important, particularly with our, our trail consumer. So it's been, it's been a fun, fun journey for sure. My background has always been in sustainability. I was a sustainability consultant for a number of years and then went on to work for a number of great brands like Heineken. And then before VF, I was at the National Hockey League. So a lot of different experiences, a lot of different audiences and stakeholders, but it's it's been it's been fun. I can imagine. I know we could start with sort of comms and engagement with a range of different groups um, with your experience in mind. But I'd love to start on the supply chain, just because I know that at SmartWall, this was something you focused on a lot for several years and that looking at transparency there is super important. So what have you learned from that? It would be great to pass on some advice to our listeners who are probably looking at engaging their supply chain to to collect data, which we know is just always a huge, huge mountain. Yeah, I think um, I feel very fortunate to work for the Merino Wool brands at VF, both SmartWall and Icebreaker now, because those brands have such strong relationships across the entire supply chain. And I think that's pretty rare uh, for apparel companies and really for most large organizations in general to really have that visibility into your tier four, tier three, all the way up, right, to um, the folks who are making your product. A lot of uh, companies just don't have that visibility or relationships, honestly. Um, And so we, both SmartWall and Icebreaker, we know our growers. 
right? We know their names. We go to their farms. We see the sheep that we are actually getting the wool from. Uh, and we're able to really build those deep relationships with them. So they know, like, right, our growers know that we are committed to them, which is fantastic. And then through that relationship, it's really allowed us to focus in on our sustainability goals and be partners with them, right? So for example, in 2021, both Smart Oil and Icebreaker, as well as Allbirds, we launched a program called ZQRX, which is a regenerative wool platform. Uh, and really to start to inspire and get our growers to adopt regenerative agriculture practices, whether that's through financial investment, but then also, again, through just that supporting the education and uh, putting that signal out to the market that this is really important to us. Both brands have strong goals around this um, in order, like for Icebreaker, for example, we want to pioneer regenerative wool. For Smart Wool, we want to have 100% climate positive wool by 2030. So again, we know we put these great goals out there, but we can't do it without our growers uh, and to really have that impact across our supply chain. So not only is it with the growers, but then looking at, like I mentioned, our our tier three, our tier two, our tier one suppliers, uh, and thinking through a lot of innovation that we can do together. For example, at SmartWool, we're very focused on circularity. And so how do we work with the suppliers who are creating our materials to be actually take some of the waste that they have and turn it back into a material? How through VF, we've actually sponsored and supported a supplier for Icebreaker in adopting clean technology. So to help reduce their emissions as well. And so I think, you know, like I said, being able to build those deep relationships across the supply chain not only lends itself to transparency and traceability, but really being able to create true impact across your entire supply chain. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like being that close doesn't just enable data collection, it enables going beyond that and really targeting where you need to make those environmental and social improvements. Because from working on this, we know that you can't do everything at all places. People usually look for a hotspot or a, or a pilot location. Yeah, exactly. Um, but to, to your point, the data collection is really critical. <laughs> but I always say, right, like, why are we, what is the end goal of data collection, right? It shouldn't just be to collect data for data's sake. It really is the, what are the insights and the why that we get from that data that we're, that we're able to collect? Um, so if we do see, right, for example, a supplier in, you know, a country that's using coal, how can we, you know, work with them to install a solar installation or something like that to, to offset? Or um, like I mentioned, just having that deep relationships with the growers, we're now actually able to create a better carbon footprint that's more appropriate for Icebreaker and Smart Wool to, to say, we know exactly where our wool is coming from, and therefore we're able to do a carbon footprint specifically at that farm, again, versus using an industry average, which can be very misleading at times completely understand that. And you've mentioned not collecting data for the sake of it so that you can act in the supply chain. But I guess it's also a case of 
doing good storytelling with that data once you have it. And I know that this month, January 2024, the business is publishing a new report. So I wanted to get your learnings on good reporting and how to make that data make the most sense to different stakeholders. So what do consumers want to know in these reports versus different kinds of stakeholders? Yeah, I think that's been the biggest challenge around sustainability communications particularly with these large reports. So you mentioned, yes, Icebreaker um, just came out with their transparency report. Um, Our first one was in 2017, and we've done an annual one ever since. And actually, you can see that this one has changed a lot. I think initially when Icebreaker first came out with their transparency report, it was intended more for the NGOs and uh, more of the industry. And so there's a lot more detail. But as as it goes along, you can see the, the evolution of it being really trying to be more focused on educating the consumer. And it gets a little a little muddled uh, because, again, the the information that you want to provide to the regulators, to, again, the industry and the watchdogs and, and the NGOs, that's very different. That's very technical, super in the weeds, very detailed versus with the consumer, I think, right, they 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 don't have time to sit and read a report. You know, from my standpoint, this hasn't been my work for the past, you know, 12 plus years. I don't go to a brand site and read their sustainability report unless it's for work, quite frankly, right? I, I, I get my information from social media or, you know, their advertising. And so it really does need to be more bite-sized. And you'll see in the in the icebreaker report this year, that's what it is. It's like, here's the facts. Right. We, we know that you don't have time to sit and read a really dense, detailed report. We'll have that information if you want it, um, but really getting more bite-sized and factual. And like I said, leaning into that transparency value of Icebreaker, I think is really key. But we don't want to just be putting out these beautiful statements. It is the way we have it set up is here is the facts. Here's what we're doing. And here are our proof points. Um, so you really, truly have all the information laid out for what the goals that we set are, what our plans are, and why we think that we're going to get there. And I think that's what consumers now are really craving is, is just don't, I was going to do a cheesy thing, I'm pulling the bull of your eyes, but you know, it's, it's like, just really just tell us what you're doing. And I think that they appreciate that really progress over perfection is key. I like the pun. Um, That's super relevant because we hear so much about balancing greenwashing and green hushing and not doing either of those things. And something else I wanted to touch on quickly, Alicia, is you've mentioned that this report is evolving as stakeholder expectations evolve. But we also know that in 2024, there is a lot of forthcoming legislation and regulation on reporting, especially um, in the EU. So does does that play a factor in slightly changing reporting um, approaches at the company? Yeah, I do. So when Icebreaker started their transparency report, they were a standalone company. And then in 2018, 2019, we got purchased by VF. And so I do think that, you know, having the parent company, which is really the one responsible for a lot of the legislation reporting, you know, um, they they have that responsibility, which then allows the brand like Icebreaker, I think, to lean more into the consumer communication and not necessarily have to worry about um, hitting all the different um, you know requirements. At the same time, though, we 
have the responsibility to our parent company. Uh, so making sure that we have the data, have the stories, um, have all the policies in place to make sure we're meeting those requirements in terms of our disclosure and communication um, is still very, very critical. Um, but I think, like I said, it, it does allow the brands being part of this larger parent company to have a little bit more flexibility to, like I said, use that report more specifically for a consumer versus, um, again, more the the legislation piece. That all makes complete sense. And Alicia, both of these things that we've talked about, so supplier engagement and writing reports, I could talk to you about all day, to be honest. Um, but time Likewise. is limited on the podcast. <laughs> I know time is limited on the podcast, so I am going to have to wrap up this conversation here. But thank you so much for all of your insights and your learnings. Thank you so much, Dara. Big thank you to Alicia once again for her time. I'm going to move swiftly on to keep up the momentum and come on to our guest interview on the topic of engaging different teams of staff. Um, And we're looking at this through the lens of how communication is not just a burden, but an opportunity for them to grow their skill set and play their part in delivering a company's really top line sustainability targets. Um, So, Matt, I don't know if you've seen this, but this is something I've seen a lot about lately. I think as the year starts, yes, people think about comms, but they also think about green skills, I think, and about growing their own skill set. Yeah, it's, um, again, it's kind of like a a corporate take on the the news resolution. Where can I improve myself or where can I improve my workforce? Uh, uh, What are the gaps that you want to try and uh, bug? And corporates can't run marathons, but they can kind of upskill their uh, their, their staff with um, with, uh, the the required skills for the, the transformation ahead and it's um i suppose it's alarming that there's a gap but it's also good that so many corporates realize there's a gap and are acting on it as well and we often hear about the gap in terms of the environmental bit specifically so like a gap in maybe heat pump installers or renewable um, workers but i had the opportunity to speak to dr victoria hands director of sustainability at the open university to look at the broader scope of what you might call Um, green skills. They recently undertook a massive survey of British businesses um, asking how many had skills gaps in not only the environmental side of things but also social and governance. Um, Worryingly four out of five said that they had gaps on all three of um, of those frontiers. So really handy to dive into with Victoria why that has happened and how it can be put right through effective engagement. So here is that chat with Victoria in full. So as we have mentioned in the studio for this next part of the podcast, it's great to be talking about all things employee engagement and upskilling with Dr. Victoria at the Open University. So Victoria, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming on. I think I should probably set the scene with how this podcast got set up. So essentially late in 2023, while I was in the throes of COP and couldn't really do a feature on this at the time, the Open University published some great research looking at skills gap in ESG in business. It found that essentially four in five businesses have skills gap in all three of those letters. So that's environmental, social and governance and a quarter of businesses said that they missed essential skills in at least one of those areas. So Victoria, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about the research and what the findings can teach us. Yes, well, um, thank you for inviting us and and we were really excited to do this survey. 
Um, so we surveyed over 500 businesses across the UK and the response were really positive in that businesses told us that over 75% are engaging regularly in conversations around ESG. But what was worrying is that less than 10%, around 8%, have an ESG strategy. So there is this gap. So we were really interested in finding out why it's a great start to be having the conversations, but why don't we have the strategies? And we all know that once you have a strategy and commitment, you're much more likely to make progress in an area. So we asked some further questions and we found out that some of the key blockers to an ESG strategy and action come around finances, come around essential skills around ESG, but also in the complexity that is perceived to be involved around ESG. So what we would like to recommend and and what, you know, in listening to our respondents, what we can see is clear is that it would be very valuable for organisations of all sizes to assess their skills needs, their upskilling requirement and um, to invest. The return on investment, we're sure, will be seen, but to invest in upskilling those employees. So that's quite a broad recommendation. Well, there's some stark findings and obviously it's a very meaningful top line recommendation. And I'd love to dive into that a bit more because I'm sure that most businesses would say that, yes, we could do better at strategising around this and investing in it. But where can they start is probably what they'd be asking. Should they be starting with senior executives, middle management, um, staff on the ground? And how can they effectively engage staff at these different levels of of work? Yes, so we found that actually the skills gap is across all areas, so senior, middle management and junior roles. And this relates to the issue around complexity as well. So what we would advise is a skill set, an upskilling programme to enable people at all levels and across all sectors and industries to really understand what the environment, social and governance the E and the S and the G mean for them in their specific roles. So, for example, we know that on that day to day basis, we know a lot of people are already contributing to the S of ESG. Um, so people services, human resources are already doing a lot of work around ethics, um, employee well-being, supporting Uh, transparency in the organisation. That links nicely into the G, the governance side of things. We know most organisations have really strong governance flows and cascades. And we also know that most organisations are already active in the environment space. So they're legally compliant. um, They have plans and policies. So we would urge people to take an asset-based approach and to ensure that organisations start with the colleagues who already have some expertise and experience of responding to ESG. We would then like those experts to help shape a a training programme, an upskilling programme, where that could be expanded out because all of those colleagues will say, look, it's not just my job. My job facilitates other people. So this is everybody's job. And indeed, that's the approach we take at the Open University is that sustainability is everyone's job. So we want everyone to upskill and reskill. 
Yeah, that sounds super comprehensive. And I'd like to dive into a bit more that you've mentioned. You have to make this relevant to people's day to day jobs um, and what they're doing. And obviously what an executive is doing is very different to a middle manager um, or a more junior staff level. So if you think about even, for example, a restaurant, your junior staff will be in the restaurant serving the food. The senior executives will be off site. So how is it different in terms of communicating with an upskilling an executive or a middle manager um, to perhaps someone a little bit more junior? So one of the key things is to really value the existing expertise within the organisation and to enable uh, those managers and senior execs and even board members uh, to understand the critical aspects and to then apply them to their individual roles, but pulling in their own experience and expertise. So an example of that would be to make sure that at the board level, there's a really clear understanding of the um, transparency, the governance requirements, uh, and to make sure that there's both assurance to the board, but also some really good questioning back to the executive upon the strategy and the decisions that are being made. And then at at an executive level, obviously, the day-to-day financial sustainability of the organisation rests at that executive level. So really making clear that engagement in ESG is not a nice to have, it's not a bolt on, but it is about having a viable business in the future. It is about protecting assets and resources, the well-being of the workforce. It's about securing long-term profitability and viability of the organisation. And so really getting to grips with what climate risk presents us with and how we can adapt to those risks. That would, from my perspective, be what we want our executive teams to be aware of. And then at the management level, I think that's where we can really roll our sleeves up and make some specific commitments, um, you know, and identify, be brave and identify what we might need to stop doing in order to start doing some things differently. That makes sense. And we all know how important climate competent boards and ESG competent boards are, that they don't see this um, as a bolt on. But something we get asked as well is if you have got more junior staff, if you have got staff that are maybe um, seasonal, high turnover, might not completely get how this relates to their day to day because they're not working on the strategic nature, um, how they can be upskilled and educated. So do you have any specific experience looking at, as you've mentioned, more junior staff as well, Victoria? So that's where the role of people services, human resources really comes into its own. Um, in advertising for our staff, interviewing our staff and inducting staff into their roles. It's really essential that we make sure that individual roles uh, know exactly what their contribution is and how to support the organisation to deliver on those goals. Um, And also, if they're front-facing, customer-facing staff, how to respond to customer questions around these issues. So that can be quite easily incorporated into the induction process. And what we've also heard and uh, seen within our own organisation is that staff are really motivated. These are issues that people care about in their personal lives. We can't fail to uh, see the changing 
extreme weather events related to climate change um, on a global and very local scale as well, whether that's extreme heat or flooding. Um, so we know people, these are issues that we all care about. So we find that staff motivation um, is enhanced when we provide training, which enables them to apply those principles in their personal lives as well as within an organisation. Great, loads of good tips here. And we've we've talked really a lot about the, the research and about your work to date. Um, but I know we're recording this podcast as our first one of the year, so it's probably worth a look of, ahead as as well. It'd be great to hear about what you're working on, um, perhaps in terms of, of course content, because we often hear about how education providers are shaping the, the jobs of the future and the skills of the future before people even get into their um, roles. So what are your key focus areas for this year ahead? At the Open University, we do take a view on our core business, which is our curriculum. So within that, we are developing a narrative around green skills. Um, we all talk or might mention green skills, but what what are they really? And uh, how can we make them applicable within the whole of our curriculum offering? Um, so we're part of a, a cohort of universities who are sharing resources to enable the embedding of sustainability within all the curriculum. So from mathematics and sciences, where perhaps it might be more obvious, to the arts and communications, uh, teaching, uh, law and business studies. So we see all of our courses as having a role to embed sustainability. And we know that's what our millennials, Gen Z, Gen X, um, that's what we're being asked to provide. We also know that employers need this. Um, you know, our survey showed that that missing these essential skills is one of the critical issues that need to be addressed this year. We're also preparing our climate adaptation plan, which very much focuses on our core business, um, but it also looks at our operational base. Uh, and the other thing that we're doing um, this year is uh, enhancing our collaborative efforts. So we really want to develop courses and activities that support our students, our graduates, our graduate employers. So we're developing courses that really respond to those specific needs. So lots of super exciting stuff on the horizon for you guys in this year. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it as the year goes on, Victoria. So do stay in touch. Um, but for this episode, that's all the time we have. So very best for all of that work. And thank you again for all of your insight and all of your top tips on employee engagement. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Victoria for her time once again. And I'm aware we have just absolutely sprinted through the first part of this podcast. Um, lots to think about. So we're going into a quick break. Join us after the jingle as I test Matt's knowledge on sustainability jargon and greenwashing as we learn some top tips on engaging consumers with green issues. Are you ready? Join us after the jingle. Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to be partnering with Lloyds Bank on the journey to creating a more sustainable and inclusive future for people and businesses aligned to a just transition. Lloyds Bank actively seeks out opportunities to support their corporate and institutional clients to finance and deliver a just net zero transition, benefiting companies, communities and the wider economy. 
To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Just Transition. Lending is subject to status. Hello again and welcome back to this episode of Edie's Sustainability Uncovered. Um, As this episode is all about sustainability engagement, it'd be remiss of Matt and I to not include a discussion on greenwashing. Um, Matt mentioned this a little bit in the start of, of this podcast, in the introduction to the episode, I should say. We have been following the trends in essentially greenwashing-related regulation, legislation and individual rulings for for years now. Um, At the beginning of last year, I published a feature essentially called Why Greenwashing Isn't Going to Fly in 2022. Um, A few months later, and the likes of Shell and um, I think three airlines in one day even got pulled up by the UK Advertising Standards Agency. Um, And I think, Matt, you touched on this earlier, that some of these claims probably were in bad faith, but not all of them. And one way that businesses can inadvertently greenwash is by using terms that most shoppers might misunderstand the definition of. In fact, the EU is moving to ban vague claims with no data and with evidence of widespread confusion through a directive that was backed in a European Parliament vote earlier this month. So with that in mind, I'm going to see whether Matt is smarter than the average shopper and whether he could outsmart the EU Parliament. I'm going to quiz you on three terms set to be impacted by that ban and see if you could define them. Um, It's a bit mean for a Monday, I know. Worst comes to worst, I I know it, and it's a terrible quiz. (laughs) Or or, or, uh, best case scenario is I'm just outed as an an idiot in the field I write about all the time, so... I mean, there is the magic... I'm not going to come out well. There's the magic of editing. That's true. That's there true. is the magic of editing. So um, I hope you've got a cup of coffee because maybe we will go over this 10 times or so. Um, but yeah, three terms that you might see on something you pick up at the supermarket. Um, you might not kn- not know what they are. Um, you might know what they are. We'll see how it goes. Um, first one being carbon neutral. So this carbon neutral, neutral laundry detergent, for example. <sighs> Yeah, okay. Uh, carbon neutral is essentially the, the balance between the emit, emitted carbon and the um, carbon that would be absorbed by um, that business's investment into stuff like natural carbon sinks. So it's um, it's essentially the balance is, 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 is where I'm going with it. I mean, that would be correct. The problem that the EU has with this sort of claim is that most people do not believe that there is necessarily a balance. They believe that the business has brought it down to neutrality without offsetting. Um, And with all the controversies around offsetting as well, that is another part of its motivation there. So you're you're on one one so far, so we can move on. Um, So Matt, for the second one, I'm going to come on to biodegradable. So these are biodegradable tea bags, maybe. Uh, biodegradable um, is essentially a material that can um, like decompose uh, in nature, or, or like nature actually would break down the the material. I'm unsure on whether to give you the point on on this on this one. The problem with biodegradable is that it often gets um, confused with compostable, um, and on compostable, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will break down. In nature, um, you might need to send it to an industrial composting facility. So I guess I should have picked compostable to make it um, it more yeah, more well, difficult. Well, 
compost, although I do actually know a lot about having a compost at home. I do know, yeah, how much neat, how much of uh, compostable means industrial. And if you just leave it in your garden, nothing happens. So. Yeah, definitely. You can just put the thing there and it'll still be be there because you're not operating an industrial facility. The thing about biodegradable, though, is there are claims debated at the moment about what proportion of the item needs to be biodegradable for it to count. Um, it might be that maybe some components are, but the person will set it out in their garden and some stuff will remain. But on the, on the main mat, I think I'd give you the point. Thank you. Um, I've saved the trickiest one for last, which is climate positive. Okay, uh, climate positive is essentially a, a business claiming that its impacts, and um, I don't know whether that counts for like value chain or, or just the, the, the business or product itself, essentially has does more good to, I suppose, than in, in this sense, the climate and the natural environment than it would do negative. So um, it's would cover uh, forestry as well as just carbon emissions. So um, there would be lots of like replanting and rewilding um, involved uh, to cover, not just cover, but and then some for the extraction of whatever raw materials they have. Same with carbon emissions, which I assume would be a lot of people using like double offsetting aspects. Would be where I'm going with this. I mean, I, I like your definition. I think that if I wasn't in this job and I just read climate positive on something I'm assuming that the business is doing amazing stuff on all of those fields that you mentioned the reason that the EU is cracking down on this one is that people are mainly backing it up with as you said double offsetting so they get to carbon neutral but then if they offset maybe even one ton more they're labeling it climate positive at the moment so that's one where there are two sort of definitions one in the minds of even us and one in the minds of the person doing the accounting. So I was yeah. deliberately mean with that one. Um, so I'd I'd say at least two out of three there for, for Matt. And the, the point uh, of me doing this quiz really was to just get into how much jargon there is, how unagreed the definitions are, and in some sectors how fast these terms are moving. Um, and that's especially true in consumer-facing sectors where there are trends. So yes, fashion, but also beauty products. Um, so it was great to speak to for this podcast, Sarah Brown, the founder of Pi Skincare, which is an SME skincare brand based here in the UK, um, about navigating this kind of jargon, which yes, the law changes every few years, but in beauty and fashion, it seems like the actual words and what people are talking about changes um, every week so Matt dare I ask whether you know what clean beauty is no points for this one but this baffled me <laughs> clean beauty yeah uh, it feels like the like products um that you use for like I don't know uh skin care and stuff like that is like not chemical based or or anything like that and is all renewable sources I, I don't know clean and beauty are not two things that have ever been used to describe me so are you looking for sympathy points from the audience? I think you might be. Um, but yeah, that's another common misconception. So natural ingredients and clean beauty aren't the same thing. So apparently clean beauty is where all ingredients are as non-toxic, effective and safe um, as possible. And in some cases, some manufacturers will say that synthetics are better than naturals in that case. So it is a veritable minefield. So it was great to speak to Sarah to navigate um, some of that and get her learnings on how to do effective on-pack 
consumer-facing sustainability messaging. So here is that discussion in full. Yes, so for this part of the podcast, we can concentrate on um, a really pressing sustainability comms challenge, I'm sure, for a lot of our listeners, which is how on earth to get our message across when we're in a very noisy, crowded, consumer-facing industry where the trends and the jargon that go along with them seem to change every week. Yes, it's great to have some time with Sarah, who is the founder and director of Pi Skincare, um, UK-based SME certified as a B Corp. Sarah, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me on. No, I couldn't pass up the chance to have you on when I read a bit about the brand and what it had been up to. Um, but for those who are listening who might not be super familiar with the brand, it'd be great to start with an introduction. Sure. So Pi is a all-natural certified organic skincare brand. We have a specialism in sensitive skin and We've been going a really long time, so over 16 years now. And we've got a very simple mission, which is we're trying to redefine sensitive skincare for people who have challenging skin. Because we, and I I speak from personal experience, have have had to compromise on so much. So we're trying to show that you can have products that work, are very high performance, um, that support your skin through ageing processes, but are also beautiful to look at you know, great to have on your bathroom shelves and, and all of the ethical pieces we're going to talk about today. So sustainable and all of that. So um, it, you can have it all, but previously you've not been able to. So it's about giving people what they want. <laughs> yeah. And as I mentioned, uh, um, everything you want in a B Corp certified package. So it'd be great to learn a bit about the um, ethical learnings of the brand and how that certification process worked. Yeah, it was interesting. We've been um, certified now for about a year and a half and do you know what for us it the the process of getting certified was actually not bad at all and I think it was because over many years we've taken a series of good decisions often not very commercially impractical but but the right ethical decisions and that includes being certified organic certified vegan cruelty free London living wage certified so we've taken these I mean, there's just a handful of examples. But when you take these decisions over many years, they kind of amount to something much bigger. And so B Corp for us, when we could have got under the skin of what it was, it was the sort of natural culmination of all of the kind of goodness we built into the brand over many years. And so it, it I mean, of course, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't as painstaking as I think it would be if you're a really established business having to go back and undo stuff and start again so yeah it's, it's been I, I mean I love the standard I think it's a great a, it's it's unusual in that it isn't it doesn't just set you to a standard it sets you to a high standard year on year so I like the fact that you are constantly challenged to evolve that that is only good um, but I also think it's been a, it's been great at um, I think they've done a great job in actually promoting the standard so I don't think your average consumer knows the ins and outs of Corp and all of the breadth of of ethical and, uh, um, and good business practice that's kind of um, enshrined in that standard, but it, it, they've, what they've successfully done is given this halo effect to to brands that are certified to show that you know you can trust these brands. They've taken good decisions. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great a great standard. And you've touched on something I wanted to come on to there, which is essentially communicating that you are B Corp to customers. Um, as you mentioned, the brand's been going quite a long time since the mid 2000s and I'm sure that communicating environmental and ethical credentials of products has changed 
um, a lot since then. And you mentioned some keywords that people might be looking for when they're shopping now, like B Corp, living wage, vegan, um, organic um, skincare. So how has that comms piece changed over over the years? Is it easier now that people know about this and care about this or does it just come with a whole new set of challenges? I mean, it's a huge question. Um, it is not easier. It's just differently hard. I would say, I think, I mean, as a headline, I would say the beauty shopper is not going to be enticed to your brands for the first time. In You know, they have thousands of brands, millions of products to choose from. They're not going to necessarily be motivated to buy you and pick you because of your ethical credentials or your B Corp status. And we know that and, and we've learned that kind of the hard way in a way when we focused our messaging squarely on that they want to know and particularly our customer I guess because often they're coming to us with a problem they want to know first and foremost and feel really confident that the product's going to work for them and it's going to potentially solve a problem for them so they they need to feel and they'll have high expectations so this they need to feel that it that they're it's a, they're hedging a good bets there and that's what's going to drive them to make a purchase first so that all of the kind of comms around um, yeah, B Corp or sustainability or organic um, for us is always secondary and often it's just a process of discovery so we, we sometimes just show not tell so we show our kite marks they are our kite marks of trust um, and we show show that but it comes sort of later and I think that it's the it it's not going to prompt that first purchase but I tell you what it it will prompt the second and it, it's that it's that values almost values add piece that's going to get that customer not just coming back again but actually telling all of their friends about you and being really evangelical about the brand and that's the magic of brand for me it's the goodness that you've built in and it's how you it, that communication of your environmental and ethical credentials doesn't ha- it, it it can be subtle sometimes and it can just be layered and for us it's been layered over many many years and built us to a position of real trust with our customers so it's for us it's not a lead message and it's not always a very direct message and I think that's probably been right for us. Yeah, I can completely imagine. And I can only imagine it's more challenging at the moment because people, we know that people want to support small brands, local brands, sustainable brands, but they also perceive them to be more expensive. And we're in a cost of living crisis. So whether that cost is actual or perceived, that's still an issue. So have you learned anything specific about changing your green messaging maybe in the past couple of years, even with that in mind? Um, yes, I mean, I think it was interesting. We did a pop up recently uh, for the first time in many years, and lots of customers who knew us came, and lots of new customers who didn't know us, you know, came onto the stand. And I would say almost n- none of them knew that we were a local business. And we, you know, we did it at Westfield, our, bus- our factories in Acton. You know, we could say that these products were made three miles away, and people were going, "That's amazing." So I think if you present a customer with two products that are perceived of equal quality. Knowing that they can they can choose the British brand or the local brand or whatever, I think it gets them over the line. So I think that's been really interesting for us. And we, you know, we are very unusual in our space in that we make our products. Um, it's almost unheard of in beauty now. And we're very proud manufacturers. It's a hard message to tell. And again, going back to that headline point around it's not what's going to motivate a customer to buy, but it's the discovery later to know, gosh. The, you know, the heart and soul that goes into these products that I'm seeing and, and hearing about makes me feel good about that choice. So I think actually it does carry a lot of weight, but it's not necessarily the thing we say first. But I think it's been an interesting 
piece to observe I think you know Black Friday is obviously a very busy time for businesses but you have small business Saturday you know I think we could do a lot more to promote that um, but there are some you know there's some people out there really singing the virtues of supporting the smaller businesses like Mary Porter's I think she's doing a lot for the independent brand so yeah. Yeah I will say that when I'm not on this podcast I do love to hear Mary on her own podcast. Yes. Yeah, super interesting stuff from her. And we've we've talked there about how when you get shoppers, the messaging needs to be secondary and there's a more nuanced way of going about this. Um, but we know that there are actually on the other side of things, certain is in which brands are being forced to disclose. So here in the UK, we're seeing the CMA sort of really implementing its green claims code. In the EU, they're really changing their green claims legislation and even looking at uh, mandates and I'd, I'd love to get your thought on what the impact on this will be for the beauty industry because for these they really are looking at consumer facing goods quite hard and in some cases you may want to do your own messaging but there'll be stricter guide rails on on that so it'd be great to get your your thoughts on what that means for the sector. I think it's a, a very very positive step because I think in beauty if you think about things like organic certification even B Corp these are voluntary standards you don't have to be certified to that it's different in food so in food you can't say organic if you're not but so we've always done the sort of good thing and producing it in a more expensive way because all of these standards bring their own costs but because it's been voluntary you know there's been a lot of Greenwashing, a lot of clean washing, that's been a whole other beauty movement around clean. Doesn't mean anything completely baffling to the customer, but led to a lot of issues and a lot of muddying of the waters. So having, and I've always said this, we need legislation and we struggle to get organic status and beauty to become required, you know, and the legal piece, it's it's still voluntary, but this has really helped. And I was quite skeptical when the Green Claims Code first came out, I thought, well, let's see how they're going to actually police this. Are they going to police this? But we're starting to see that happening, which is great. But the simplest message here is it just levels the playing field. If you're now forcing people to actually evidence what they say they are, that's great. So I think it's only positive. I, in, we're seeing some really interesting developments, as you say, in Europe and particularly in France. If we bring in this legislation, that's going to make a massive difference and force us to actually not just all pull the same levers and do these things, but actually think differently. Um, and get our customers to try in a different way so I'm all for it and it's it's music to my ears after years of, of kind of banging this drum but but doing everything right and away from from a certification point of view but it not being a legal requirement. It's really refreshing to hear someone um, essentially open arms welcoming these things that are, that are coming forth in 2024 because we've heard a lot about people maybe running scared, maybe not disclosing or reporting or doing on-pack messaging as much because they're just afraid something known as as green hushing. So, so I'd ask what you would say about that. I don't think people should run scared. I really don't because, and this is really important to say, what I think consumers want, they just want authentic messaging. They want to trust and they want you don't. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. There's lots of things at Pi we don't have sewn up, right? Masses. But we're always truthful about, you know, our flaws. And if you're honest about saying look, we, we don't do refillable yet, but it's something we're working on. Or if we, you know, we're trying to fix our, our sampling. And as long as you, I think, honest and open about what you're trying to do and the steps you're taking, that is fine. And you could do one thing well. You don't have to have everything, you know, ready and right. So I think it's about authenticity that customers want to see. 
it's not about being perfect. And so, you know, the, the, the central message is saying you're something doesn't make it true. So make sure the bits that you're saying you are, you are validating and providing the evidence for. But it is as simple as that. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect everywhere at all. I mean, it's a really strong call to action. We are here to talk about comms, but as you've said, comms are only as good as the work that you're doing behind the scenes in the first place. So I couldn't think of a better note to end this part of the podcast on. So thank you, Sarah, so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you to Sarah at Pi once again for her time. Um, and with that, we've gone three for three with our guest interviews. Um, but as Matt and I have mentioned, um, if you've enjoyed today's episode, there is plenty more of our Engage 2024 content on ed.net. Once again, our homepage is ed.net. And if you want to engage with the ED team by continuing our conversation in person, you're in luck because our biggest face-to-face event is just weeks away. ED24 is taking place in central London on March 20th and 21st. We'll be convening hundreds of sustainability, energy and business leaders for two days of pan-industry strategising, collaborating and networking across more than 50 sessions. So come along to hear from the likes of Chris Stark, the outgoing CEO of the Climate Change Committee, Kate Levick, who is the co-chair of the Transition Plan Task Force, and Claire O'Neill, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development Chairperson. So don't miss out. Our full agenda and our tickets can be found at event.ed.net forward slash forum. Before then, we'll be back in late February with another episode of Sustainability Uncovered. And while Matt and I can't give too much away at this stage, we are shaping up a special for Valentine's Day to warm our cold hearts. Um, Of course, using heat pumps or another renewable option. But for today's episode, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.